This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides Translated by Richard Crawley Book Two Chapter Six Beginning of the Peloponnesian War First Invasion of Attica Funeral Oration of Pericles The war between the Athenians and Peloponnesians and the allies on either side now really begins. For now, all intercourse except through the medium of heralds ceased, and hostilities were commenced and prosecuted without intermission. The history follows the chronological order of events by summers and winters. The Thirty Years' Truce, which was entered into after the conquest of Euboea, lasted fourteen years. In the fifteenth, in the forty-eighth year of the priestesship of Chrysus at Argos, in the effort of Anesius at Sparta, in the last month but two of the archonship of Pythodorus at Athens, and six months after the battle of Potidaea, just as the beginning of spring, a Theban force a little over three hundred strong, under the command of their Botarchs, Pythangelus, son of Philades, and Diamparus, son of Onetorides, about the first watch of the night, made an armed entry into Plataea, a town of Boeotia, in alliance with Athens. The gates were opened to them by a Plataean called Naclides, who, with his party, had invited them in, meaning to put to death the citizens of the opposite party, bring over the city to Thebes, and thus obtain power for themselves. This was arranged through Eurymachus, son of Leontiades, a person of great influence at Thebes, for Plataea had always been at variance with Thebes, and the latter, foreseeing that war was at hand, wished to surprise her old enemy in time of peace, before hostilities had actually broken out. Indeed, this was how they got in so easily without being observed, as no guard had been posted. After the soldiers had grounded arms in the marketplace, those who had invited them in wished them to set to work at once and go to their enemies' houses. This, however, the Thebans refused to do, but determined to make a conciliatory proclamation, and if possible to come to a friendly understanding with the citizens. Their herald accordingly invited any who wished to resume their old place in the confederacy of their countrymen to ground arms with them, for they thought that in this way the city would readily join them. On becoming aware of the presence of the Thebans within their gates, and of the sudden occupation of the town, the Plataeans concluded in their alarm that more had entered than was really the case, the night preventing their seeing them. They accordingly came to terms, and, accepting the proposal, made no movement, especially as the Thebans offered none of them any violence. But somehow or other, during the negotiations, they discovered the scanty numbers of the Thebans, and decided that they could easily attack and overpower them, the mass of the Plataeans being averse to revolting from Athens. At all events, they resolved to attempt it. Digging through the party walls of the houses, they thus managed to join each other without being seen, going through the streets, in which they placed wagons without the beasts in them, to serve as a barricade, and arranged everything else as seemed convenient for the occasion. When everything had been done that circumstances permitted, 
they watched their opportunity and went out of their houses against the enemy. It was still night. The daybreak was at hand. In daylight it was thought that their attack could be met by men full of courage and on equal terms with their assailants, while in darkness it would fall upon panic-stricken troops, who would also be at, at a disadvantage from their enemy's knowledge of the locality. So they made their assault at once, and came to close quarters as quickly as they could. The Thebans, finding themselves outwitted, immediately closed up to repel all attacks made upon them. Twice or thrice they beat back their assailants, but the men shouted and charged them. The women and slaves screamed and yelled from the houses and pelted them with stones and tiles. Besides, it had been raining hard all night, and so at last their courage gave way, and they turned and fled through the town. Most of the fugitives were quite ignorant of the right ways out, and this, with the mud and the darkness caused by the moon being in her last quarter, and the fact that their pursuers knew their way about and could easily stop their escape, proved fatal to many. The only gate open was the one by which they had entered, and this was shut by one of the Plataeans driving the spike of a javelin into the bar instead of the bolt, so that even here there was no longer any means of exit. They were now chased all over the town. Some got on the wall and threw themselves over, in most cases with a fatal result. One party managed to find a deserted gate, and obtaining an axe from a woman, cut through the bar, but as they were, were soon observed, only a few succeeded in getting out. Others were cut off in detail in different parts of the city. The most numerous and compact body rushed into a large building next to the city wall. The doors on the side of the street happened to be open, and the Thebans fancied that they were the gates of the town, and that there was a passage right through to the outside. The Plataeans, seeing their enemies in a trap, now consulted whether they should set fire to the building and burn them just as they were, or whether there was anything else that they could do with them, until at length these and the rest of the Theban survivors found wandering about the town agreed to an unconditional surrender of themselves and their arms to the Plataeans. While such was the fate of the party in Plataea, the rest of the Thebans who were to have joined them with all their forces before daybreak, in case of anything miscarrying with the body that had entered, received the news of the affair on the road, and pressed forward to their succor. Now, Plataea is nearly eight miles from Thebes, and their march delayed by the rain that had fallen in the night, for the river Esopus had risen and was not easy of passage. And so, hoping to march in the rain, and being hindered in, the crossing, in crossing the river, they arrived too late, and found the whole party either slain or captive. When they learned what had happened, they at once formed a design against the Plataeans outside the city. As the attack had been made in time of peace, and was perfectly unexpected, there were of course men and stock in the fields, and the Thebans wished, if possible, to have some prisoners to exchange against their countrymen in the town, should any chance to have been taken alive. Such was their plan. But the Plataeans suspected their intention almost before it was formed, and becoming alarmed for their fellow citizens outside the town, sent a herald to the Thebans reproaching them for their unscrupulous attempt to seize their city in time of peace, and warning them against any outrage on those outside. Should the warning be disregarded, they threatened to put to death the men they had in their hands, but added that, on the Thebans retiring from their territory, they would surrender the prisoners to their friends. This is the Theban account of the matter. And they say that they had an oath given them. The Plataeans, on the other hand, 
do not admit any promise of an immediate surrender, but make it contingent upon subsequent negotiation. The oath they deny altogether. Be this as it may, upon the Thebans retiring from their territory without committing any injury, the Plataeans hastily got in whatever they had in the country, and immediately put the men to death. The prisoners were a hundred and eighty in number, Eurymachus, the person with whom the traitors had negotiated, being one. This done, the Plataeans sent a messenger to Athens, gave back the dead to the Thebans under a truce, and arranged things in the city as seemed best to meet the present emergency. The Athenians, meanwhile, having had word of the affair sent them immediately after its occurrence, had instantly seized all the Boeotians in Attica, and sent a herald to the Plataeans to forbid their proceeding to extremities with their Theban prisoners without instructions from Athens. The news of the men's death had of course not arrived, the first messenger having left Plataea just when the Thebans entered it, the second just after their defeat and capture, so there was no later news. Thus the Athenians sent orders in ignorance of the facts, and the herald on his arrival found the men slain. After this, the Athenians marched to Plataea and brought in provisions, and left a garrison in the place, also taking away the women and children and such of the men as were least efficient. After the affair at Plataea, the treaty had been broken by an overt act, and Athens at once prepared for war, as did the Lacedaemon and her allies. They resolved to send embassies to the king, and to such of the barbarian powers as either party could look to for assistance, and tried to ally themselves with the independent states at home. Lacedaemon, in addition to the existing maritime, gave orders to the states that they had declared for her in Italy and Sicily to build vessels up to a grand total of five hundred, the quota of each city being determined by its size, and also to provide a specified sum of money. Till these were ready, they were to remain neutral, and to admit single Athenian ships into their harbors. Athens, on her part, reviewed her existing confederacy, and sent embassies to the places more immediately, round Peloponnese, Corsira, Cephalenia, Acarnania, and Zacynthus, perceiving that if these could be relied on, she could carry the war all round Peloponnese, and if both sides nourished the boldest hopes and put forth their utmost strength for the war, this was only natural. Zeal is always at its height at the commencement of an undertaking, and on this particular occasion Peloponnese and Athens were both full of young men whose inexperience made them eager to take up arms, while the rest of Hellas stood straining with excitement at the conflict of its leading cities. Everywhere predictions were being recited and oracles being chanted by such persons as collect them. And this is not only in the contending cities. Further, some, while before this, there was an earthquake at Delos, for the first time in the memory of the Hellenes. This was said and thought to be ominous of the events impending. Indeed, nothing of the kind that happened was allowed to pass without remark. The good wishes of men made greatly for the Lacedaemonians, especially as they proclaimed themselves the liberators of Hellas. No private or public effort that could help them in speech or action was omitted, each thinking that the cause suffered wherever he could not himself see to it. So general was the indignation felt against Athens, whether by those who wished to escape from her empire, or were apprehensive of being absorbed by it. Such were the preparations, and such the feelings with which the contest opened. 
The allies of the two belligerents were the following. These were the allies of Lacedaemon. All the Peloponnesians within the Isthmus, except the Argives and Achaeans, who were neutral, Pellene being the only Achaean city that first joined the war, though her example was afterward followed by the rest. Outside Peloponnese, the Megarians, Locrians, Boeotians, Phocians, Ambrosiates, Leucadians, and Actorians. Of these, ships were furnished by the Corinthians, Megarians, Sicyonians, Pellenians, Aleans, Ambrosiates, and Leucadians, and cavalry by the Boeotians, Phocians, and Locrians. The other states sent infantry. This was the Lacedaemonian Confederacy. That of Athens comprised the Chians, Lesbians, Plataeans, the Mycenaeans in Napactus, most of the Arcanians, the Corsirians, Zasthenians, and some tributary cities in the following countries: Caria upon the sea with her Dorian neighbors, Ionia, the Hellespont, the Thracian towns, the islands lying between Peloponnese and Crete toward the east, and all the Cyclades except Melos and Thera. Of these, ships were furnished by Chios, Lesbos, and Corsira, infantry and money by the rest. Such were the allies of either party and the resources for the war. Immediately after the affair at Plataea, Lacedaemon sent round orders to the cities in Peloponnese and the rest of her confederacy to prepare troops and the provisions requisite for a foreign campaign, in order to invade Attica. The several states were ready at the time appointed and assembled at the Isthmus, the contingent of each city being two-thirds of its whole force. After the whole army had mustered, the Lacedaemonian king, Archidamus, the leader of the expedition, called together the generals of all the states and the principal persons and officers, and exhorted them as follows. Peloponnesians and allies, our fathers made many campaigns both within and without Peloponnese, and the elder men among us here are not without experience in war. Yet we have never set out with a larger force than the present, and if our numbers and efficiency are remarkable, so also is the power of the state against which we march. We ought not, then, to show ourselves inferior to our ancestors, or unequal to our own reputation, for the hopes and attention of all Hellas are bent upon the present effort, and its sympathy is with the enemy of the hated Athens. Therefore, numerous as the invading army may appear to be, and certain as some may think it that our adversary will not meet us in the field, this is no sort of justification for the least negligence upon the march, but the officers and men of each particular city should always be prepared for the advent of danger in their own quarters. The course of war cannot be foreseen, and its attacks are generally dictated by the impulse of the moment and where overweening self-confidence has despised preparation, a wise apprehension often been able to make head against superior numbers. Not that confidence is out of place in an army of invasion, but in an enemy's country it should also be accompanied by the precautions of apprehension. Troops will, by this combination, be best inspired for dealing a blow, and best secured against receiving one. In the present instance, the city against which we are going far from being so impotent for defense, is on the contrary most excellently equipped at all points, so that we have every reason to expect that they will take the field against us. 
and that if they have not set out already before we are there, they will certainly do so when they see us in their territory, wasting and destroying their property. For men are always exasperated at suffering injuries to which they are not accustomed, and on seeing them inflicted before their very eyes, and where least inclined for reflection, rush with the greatest heat to action. The Athenians are the very people of all others to do this, as they aspire to rule the rest of the world, and are more in the habit of invading and ravaging their neighbor's territory than of seeing their own treated in the like fashion. Considering, therefore, the power of the state against which we are marching, and the greatness of the reputation which, according to the event, we shall win or lose for our ancestors and ourselves, remember as you follow where you may be led to regard discipline and vigilance as of the first importance, and to obey with alacrity the orders transmitted to you, as nothing contributes so much to the credit and safety of an army as the union of large bodies by a single discipline. With this brief speech dismissing the assembly, Archidamus first sent off Melesippus, son of Diacritus, a Spartan, to Athens, in case she should be more inclined to submit on seeing the Peloponnesians actually on the march. But the Athenians did not admit into the city or to their assembly, Pericles having already carried a motion against admitting either herald or embassy from the Lacedaemonians after they had once marched out. The herald was accordingly sent away without an audience, and ordered to be beyond the frontier that same day. In future, if those who sent him had a proposition to make, they must retire to their own territory before they dispatched embassies to Athens. An escort was sent with Melesippus to prevent his holding communication with anyone. When he reached the frontier and was just going to be dismissed, he departed with these words. This day will be the beginning of great misfortunes to the Hellenes. As soon as he arrived at camp, and Archidamus learnt that the Athenians had still no thoughts of submitting, he at length began his march, and advanced with his army into their territory. Meanwhile, the Boeotians, sending their contingent and cavalry to join the Peloponnesian expedition, went to Plataea with the remainder and laid waste the country. While the Peloponnesians were still mustering at the Isthmus, or on the march before they invaded Attica, Pericles, son of Xanthippus, one of the ten generals of the Athenians, finding that the invasion was to take place, conceived the idea that Archidamus, who happened to be his friend, might possibly pass by his estate without ravaging it. This he might do, either from a personal wish to oblige him, or acting under instructions from Lacedaemon for the purposes of creating a prejudice against him, as had been before attempted in the demand for the expulsion of the accursed family. He accordingly took the precaution of announcing to the Athenians in the assembly that, although Archidamus was his friend, yet this friendship should not extend to the detriment of the state, and that in many cases the enemy should make his houses and lands an exception to the rest, and not pillage them. He at once gave them up to be public property, so that they should not bring him into suspicion. He also gave the citizens some advice on their present affairs in the same strain as before. They were to prepare for the war, and to carry in their property from the country. They were not to go out to battle, but to come into the city and guard it, and get ready their fleet in which their real strength lay. They were also to, to keep a tight rein on their allies, the strength of Athens being derived from the money brought in by their payments, and success in war depending principally upon conduct and capital. They had no reason to despond. Apart from the other sources of income, 
an average revenue of six hundred talents of silver was drawn from the tribute of the allies, and there were still six thousand talents of coined silver in the Acropolis, out of nine thousand seven hundred that had once been there, from which the money had been taken for, for the porch of the Acropolis, the other public buildings, and for Potidaea. This did not include the uncoined gold and silver in public and private offerings, the sacred vessels for the processions and games, the median spoils, and similar resources to the amount of five hundred talents. To this he added the treasures of the other temples. These were by no means inconsiderable, and might fairly be used. Nay, if they were ever absolutely driven to it, they might take even the gold ornaments of Athene herself, for the statue contained forty talents of pure gold, and it was all removable. This might be used for self-preservation, and must every penny of it be restored. Such was their financial position, surely a satisfactory one. They then had an army of 13,000 heavy infantry, besides 16,000 more in the garrisons and on home duty at Athens. This was at first the number of men on guard in the event of an invasion. It was composed of the oldest and youngest levies, and the resident aliens who had heavy armor. The Phileric Wall ran up to four miles, before it joined that round, that round the city, and of this last nearly five had a guard, although part of it was left without one, that between the Long Wall and the Phaleric. Then there were the Long Walls to Piraeus, a distance of some four miles and a half, the outer of which was manned. Lastly, the circumference of Piraeus with Munichia was nearly seven miles and a half, only half of this, however, was guarded. Pericles also showed them that they had twelve hundred horse, including mounted archers, with sixteen hundred archers unmounted, and three hundred galleys fit for service. Such were the resources of Athens in the different departments when the Peloponnesian invasion was impending and hostilities were being commenced. Pericles also urged his usual arguments for expecting a favorable issue to the war. The Athenians listened to his advice, and began to carry in their wives and children from the country, and all their household furniture, even to the woodwork of their houses, which they took down. Their sheep and cattle they sent over to Euboea, in the adjacent islands, but they found it hard to move, as most of them had always been used to living in the country. From very early times, this had been more the case with the Athenians than with others. Under Cecrops and the first kings, down to the reign of, Th of Theseus, Attica had always consisted of a number of independent townships, each with its own town hall and magistrates. Except in times of danger, the king at Athens was not consulted. In ordinary seasons, they carried on their government and settled their affairs without his interference. Sometimes even they waged war against him, as in the case of the Ulysseans, with Eumolpus against Erechtheus. In Theseus, however, they had a king of equal intelligence and power, and one of the chief features in his organization of the country was to abolish the council chambers and magistrates of the petty cities and to merge them in the single council chamber and town hall of the present capital. Individuals might still enjoy their private property just as before, but they were henceforth compelled to have only one political center, Athens, which thus counted all the inhabitants of Attica among her cities, citizens, so that when Theseus died he left a great state behind him. Indeed, from him dates the Cenosia, or Feast of Union, which is paid for by the state, and which the Athenians still keep in honor of the goddess. Before this, the city consisted of the present citadel 
and the district beneath it looking rather towards the south. This is shown by the fact that the temples of the other deities, besides that of Athene, are in the citadel, and even these that are outside it are mostly situated in this quarter of the city, as that of the Olympian Zeus, of the Pythian Apollo, of Earth, and of Dionysus in the marshes, the same in whose honor the older Dionysia are to this day celebrated in the month of Anthestrion, not only by the Athenians, but also by their Ionian descendants. There are also other ancient temples in this quarter. The fountain, too, which, since the alteration made by the tyrants, has been called Necronius, or Nine Pipes, but which, when the spring was open, went by the name of Kalarujo, or Fair Water, was in these days, from being so near, used for the most important offices. Indeed, the old fashion of using the water before marriage, and for other sacred purposes, is still kept up. Again, from their old residence in that quarter, the citadel is still known among Athenians as the city. The Athenians thus long lived scattered over Attica in independent townships. Even after the centralization of Theseus, old habits still prevailed, and from the early times down to the present war, present war, most Athenians still lived in the country with their families and households, and were consequently not at all inclined to move now, especially as they had only just restored their establishments after the Median invasion. Deep was their trouble and discontent at abandoning their houses and their hereditary temples of the ancient constitution, and, they, and at having to change their habits of life and to bid farewell to what each regarded as his native city. When they arrived in Athens, although a few had houses of their own to go to, or could find an asylum with friends or relatives, by far the greater number had to take up their dwelling in the parts of the city that were not built over, and in the temples and chapels of the heroes, except the Acropolis and the temple of the Eulusian Demeter, and such other places as were always kept closed. The occupation of the plot of ground lying below the citadel, called the Pelasgian, had been forbidden by a curse, and there was also an ominous fragment of a Pythian oracle which said, Leave the Pelasgian parcel desolate. Woe worth the day the men that inhabit it. Yet this too was now built over in the necessity of the moment, and, in my opinion, if the oracle proved true, it was in the opposite sense to what was expected, for the misfortunes of the state did not arise from the unlawful occupation, but the necessity of the occupation from the war. And though the god did not mention this, he foresaw that it would be an evil day for Athens in which the plot came to be inhabited. Many also took up their quarters in the towns, in the towers of the walls, or wherever else they could. For when they were all come in, the city proved too small to hold them, though afterwards they divided the long walls and a great part of Piraeus into lots and settled there. All this while great attention was being given to the war. The allies were being mustered and an armament of a hundred ships equipped for Peloponnese. Such was the state of preparations at Athens. Meanwhile, the army of the Peloponnesians was advancing. The first town they came to in Attica was Onio, where they were they to enter the country. Sitting down before it, they prepared to assault the wall with engines and otherwise. Onio, standing upon the Athenian and Boeotian border, was of course a walled town, and was used as a fortress by the Athenians in time of war. So the Peloponnesians prepared their assault, 
and wasted some valuable time before the place. This delay brought the gravest censure upon Archidamus. Even during the levying of the war, he had credit for weakness and Athenian sympathies by the half-measures he had advocated. And after the army had assembled, he had further injured himself in public estimation by his loitering at the isthmus and the slowness with which the rest of the march had been conducted. But all this was as nothing to the delay at Onio. During this interval the Athenians were carrying in their property, and it was the belief of the Peloponnesians that a quick advance would have found everything still out, had it not been for his procrastination. Such was the feeling of the army towards Archidamus during the siege. But he, it is said, expected that the Athenians would shrink from letting their lands be wasted, and would make their submission while it was still uninjured, and this was why he waited. But after he had assaulted Onio, and every possible attempt to take it had failed, as no herald came from Athens, he at last broke up his camp and invaded Attica. This was about eighty days after the Theban attempt upon Plataea, just in the middle of summer, when the corn was ripe, and Archidamus, son of Zeusus, king of Lacedaemon, was in command. In camping in Eleusis and the Thriasian plain, they began their ravages, and putting to flight some Athenian horse at a place called Rite, or the brooks, they then advanced, keeping Mount Aegilus on their right through Cropia until they reached Acarnae, the largest town of the Athenian deems or townships. Sitting down before it, they formed a camp there, and continued their ravages for a long while. The reason why Archidamus remained in order of battle at Acarnae during this incursion, instead of descending into the plain, is said to have been this. He hoped that the Athenians might possibly be tempted by the multitude of their youth and the un unprecedented efficiency of their service to come out to battle and attempt to stop the devastation of their lands. Accordingly, as they had met him at Eleusis or the Thriasian plain, he tried if they could be provoked to a sally by the spectacle of a camp at Acarnae. He thought the place itself a good position for encamping, and it seemed likely that such an important part of the state as the three thousand heavy infantry of the Carnians would refuse to submit the ruin of their property, and would force a battle on the rest of the citizens. On the other hand, should the Athenians not take to the field during this incursion, he could then fearlessly ravage the plain in future invasions, and extend his advance up to the very walls of Athens. After the Acarnians had lost their own property, they would be less willing to risk themselves for that of their neighbors, and so there would be division in the Athenian councils. These, are, these were the motives of Archidamus for remaining at Acarnae. In the meanwhile, as long as the army was at Eleusis and the Thriasian plain, hopes were still entertained of its not advancing any nearer. It was remembered that Pleistonax, son of Pausanias, king of Lacedaemon, had invaded Attica with a Peloponnesian army fourteen years before, but had retreated without advancing farther than Eleusis and Thria, which indeed proved the cause of his exile from Sparta, as it was thought he had been bribed to retreat. But when they saw the army at Acarnae, barely seven miles from Athens, they lost all patience. The territory of Athens was being ravaged before the very eyes of the Athenians, a sight which the young men had never seen before, and the old only in the Median wars. And it was naturally thought a grievous insult, and the determination was universal, especially among the young men, to sally forth and stop it. Knots were formed in the street, and engaged in hot discussion. For if the proposed sally was warmly recommended, 
it was also in some cases opposed. Oracles of the most various import were recited by the collectors, and found eager listeners in one or other of the disputants. Foremost in pressing for the sally were the Acarnians, as constituting no small part of the army of the state, and as, as it was their land that was being ravaged. In short, the whole city was in a most excited state. Pericles was the object of general indignation. His previous counsels were totally forgotten. He was abused for not leading out the army which he commanded, and was made responsible for the whole of the public suffering. He, meanwhile, seeing anger and infatuation just now in the ascendant, and of his wisdom in refusing a sally, would not call either assembly or meeting of the people. Fearing the fatal results of a debate inspired by passion, and not by prudence. Accordingly, he addressed himself to the defense of the city, and kept it as quiet as possible, though he constantly sent out cavalry to prevent raids on the lands near the city from flying parties of the enemy. There was a trifling affair at Phrygia between a squadron of the Athenian horse with the Thessalians and the Boeotian cavalry, in which the former had rather the best of it, until the heavy infantry advanced to the support of the Boeotians when the Thessalians and Athenians were routed and lost a few men, whose bodies, however, were recovered the same day without a truce. The next day the Peloponnesians set up a trophy. Ancient alliance brought the Thessalians to the aid of Athens, those who came being the Larissians, Pharsalians, Crononians, Parasians, Gertonians, and Phrians. The Larissian commanders were Polymedes, and Aristonus, two party leaders in Larissa. The Pharsalian general was Menon. Each of their other cities also had its own commander. In the meantime, the Peloponnesians, as the Athenians did not come out to engage them, broke up from Acarne and ravaged some of the deems between Mount Parnes and Berlesus. While they were in Attica, the Athenians sent off the hundred ships which they had been preparing round Peloponnese, with a, with a thousand heavy infantry and four hundred archers on board, under the command of Carcinus, son of Xenotimus, Proteus, son of Epicles, and Socrates, son of Antigenes. This armament weighed anchor and started on its cruise, and the Peloponnesians, after remaining in Attica as long as their provisions lasted, retired through Boeotia by a different road to that which they had entered. As they passed Europus, they ravaged the territory of Gria, which is held by the Europeans from Athens and reaching Peloponnese, broke up to their respective cities. After they had retired, the Athenians set guards by land and sea at the points at which they intended to have regular stations during the war. They also resolved to set apart a special fund of a thousand talents from the monies in the Acropolis. This was not to be spent, but the current expenses of war were to be otherwise provided for. If any one should move or put to the vote, a proposition for using the money for any purpose, whatever, except that of defending the city in the event of the enemy bringing a fleet to make an attack by sea, it should be a capital offense. With this sum of money, they also set aside a special fleet of 100 galleys, the best ships of each year, with their captains. None of these were to be used except with the money and against the same peril, should such peril arise. Meanwhile, the Athenians in the, in the hundred ships round Peloponnese, reinforced by a Corsarian squadron of fifty vessels, and some others of the allies in those parts, cruised about the coasts and ravaged the country. Among other places they landed in Lysonia, 
and made an assault upon Methon, there being no garrison in the place, and the wall being weak. But it so happened that Brasidas, son of Tellus, a Spartan, was in command of a guard for the defense of the district. Hearing of the attack, he hurried with a hundred heavy infantry to the assistance of the besieged, and dashing the army of the Athenians, which was scattered over the country and had its attention turned to the wall, threw himself into Methon. He lost a few men in making good his entrance, but saved the place and won the thanks of Sparta by his exploit, being thus the first officer who obtained this notice during the war. The Athenians at once weighed anchor and continued their cruise. Touching at Phaia and Elis, they ravaged the country for two days and defeated a picked force of three hundred men that had come from the Vale of Elis in the immediate neighborhood to the rescue. But a stiff squall came down upon them, and not liking to face it in a place where there was no harbor, most of them got on board their ships, and, doubling point Isithus, sailed into the port of Phia. In the meantime the Messenians, and some others who could not get on board, marched over by land and took Phia. The fleet afterwards sailed round and picked them up, and then put to sea, Phia being evacuated as the main army of the Eleans had now come up. The Athenians continued their cruise and ravaged other places on the coast. About the same time the Athenians sent thirty ships to cruise round Locris and also to guard Euboea. Cleopompus, son of Clinius, being in command. Making descents from the fleet, he ravaged certain places on the sea coast, and captured Thronium, and took hostages from it. He also defeated Alope, the Elocrians that had assembled to resist him. During the summer, the Athenians also expelled the Aegeanetans with their wives and children from Aegina, on the ground of their having been the chief agents in bringing the war upon them. Besides, Aegina lies so near Peloponnese that it seemed safer to send colonists of their own to hold it, and shortly afterwards the settlers were sent out. The banished Aegeanetans found an asylum in Theria, which was given them by the Lacedaemon, not only on account of her, of her quarrel with Athens, but also because the Aegeanetans had laid her under obligations at the time of the earthquake and the revolt of the Helots. The territory of Thyrea is on the frontier of Argolis and Laconia, reaching down to the sea. Those of the Aegeanetans who did not settle here were scattered all over the rest of Hellas. The same summer, at the beginning of a new lunar month, the only time, by the way, at which it appears possible, the sun was eclipsed afternoon. After it had assumed the form of a crescent and some of the stars had come out, it returned to its natural shape. During the same summer, Nymphodorus, son of Pythes, an Abderite, whose sister Cetalces had married, was made their proxenus by the Athenians and sent for to Athens. They had hitherto considered him their enemy, but he had great influence with Cetalces, and they wished this prince to become their ally. Cetalces was the son of Teres and king of the Thracians. Teres, the father of Cetalces, was the first to establish the great kingdom of the Odrysians on a scale quite unknown to the rest of Thrace, a large population of the Thraces being independent. This Teres in no way related to Tereus, who married Pandian's daughter Procne from Athens, nor indeed did they belong to the same part of Thrace. Tereus lived in Daulis, part of what is now called Phocis, but which at that time was inhabited by Thracians. It was in this land that the women perpetrated the outrage upon Itis. 
and many of the poets, when they mention the nightingale, call it the Dolian bird. Besides, Pandion, in contracting an alliance for his daughter, would consider the advantages of mutual assistance, and would naturally prefer a match at the above moderate distance to the journey of many days which separates Athens from the Adrissians. Again, the names are different, and this Tyres was king of the Odrysians, the first, by the way, who attained to any power. Sotelces, his son, was now sat as an ally by the Athenians, who desired his aid in the reduction of the Thracian towns and of Perdiccas. Coming to Athens, Nymphodorus concluded the alliance with Sotelces, and made his son Sadocus an Athenian citizen, and promised to finish the war in Thrace by persuading Sotelces to send the Athenians a force of Thracian horse and targeteers. He also reconciled them with Perdixus, and induced them to restore Thermae to him, upon which Perdixus at once joined the Athenians and Formio in an expedition against the Chalcidians. Thus Sotelces, son of Teres, king of the Thracians, and Perdixus, son of Alexander, king of the Macedonians, became allies of Athens. Meanwhile, the Athenians in the hundred vessels were still cruising round Peloponnese. After taking Solium, a town belonging to Corinth, and presenting the city and territory to the Acarnians of Polaria, they stormed Astacus, expelled its tyrant Evarchus, and gained the place for their confederacy. Next they sailed to the island of Cephalenia, and brought it over without using force. Cephalania lies off Arcanarnia and Lucas, and consists of four states, the Paleans, Cranians, Samians, and Proneans. Not long afterwards the fleet returned to Athens. Toward the autumn of this year, the Athenians invaded the Megarid with their whole levy, resident aliens included, under the command of Pericles, son of Xanthippus. The Athenians in the hundred ships around Peloponnese, on their journey home, had just reached Aegina, and hearing that the citizens at home were in full force at Megara, now sailed over and joined them. This was without doubt the largest army of Athenians ever assembled, the state being still in the flower of her strength, and yet unvisited by the plague. Full ten thousand heavy infantry were in the field, all Athenian citizens, besides the three thousand before Potidaea. Then the resident aliens who joined in the incursion were at least three thousand strong, besides which there was a multitude of light troops. They ravaged the greater part of the territory, and then retired. Other incursions into the Megarid were afterwards made by the Athenians annually during the war, sometimes only with cavalry, sometimes with all their forces. This went on until the capture of Nicaea. Atalanta, too, the desert island off the Opuntian coast, was towards the end of this summer converted into a fortified post by the Athenians, in order to prevent privateers issuing from Opus, and the rest of Locris, and plundering Euboea. Such were the events of this summer after the return of the Peloponnesians from Attica. In the ensuing winter, the Carnanian Evarchus, wishing to return to Astacus, persuaded the Corinthians to sail over with forty ships and fifteen hundred heavy infantry and restore him, himself also hiring some mercenaries. In command of the force were Euphemides, son of Aristonymus, Timoxenus, son of Timocrates, and Eumachus, son of Chrysus, who sailed over and restored him, and after failing in an attempt 
on some places on the Acarnanian coast, which they were desirous of gaining, began their voyage home. Coasting along shore, they touched at Cephalenia and made a descent on the Cranian territory, and losing some men by the treachery of the Cranians, who fell suddenly upon them after having agreed to treat, put to sea somewhat hurriedly and returned home. In the same winter the Athenians gave a funeral, at the public cost, to those who had first fallen in this war. It was a custom of their ancestors, and the matter of it is as follows. Three days before the ceremony, the bones of the dead are laid out in a tent which has been erected, and their friends bring to their relatives such offerings as they please. In the funeral procession, cypress coffins are borne in cars, one for each tribe, the bones of the deceased being placed in the coffin of their tribe. Among these is carried one empty bier, decked for the missing, that is, for those whose bodies could not be recovered. Any citizen or stranger who pleases joins in the procession, and the female relatives are there to wail at the burial. The dead are laid in the public sepulchre in the beautiful suburb of the city, in which those who fall in war are always buried, with the exception of those slain at Marathon, who for their singular and extraordinary valor were interred on the spot where they fell. After the bodies had been laid in the earth, a man chosen by the state, of approved wisdom and eminent reputation, pronounces over them an appropriate panegyric, after which all retire. Such is the manner of the burying, and throughout the whole of the war, whenever the occasion arose, the established custom was observed. Meanwhile, these were the first that had fallen, and Pericles, son of Xanthippus, was chosen to pronounce their elogium. When the first time arrived, he advanced from the sepulchre to an elevated platform in order to be heard by as many of the crowd as possible, and spoke as follows. Most of my predecessors in this place have commended him who made this speech part of the law, telling us that it is well that it should be delivered at the burial of those who fall in battle. For myself, I should have thought that the worth which had displayed itself in deeds would be sufficiently rewarded by honors also shown by deeds, such as you now see in this funeral prepared at the people's cost. And I could have wished that the reputations of many brave men were not to be imperiled in the mouth of a single individual, to stand or fall according as he spoke well or ill. For it is hard to speak properly upon a subject where it is even difficult to convince your hearers that you are speaking the truth. On the one hand, the friend who is familiar with every fact of the story may think that some point has not been set forth with that fullness which he wishes and knows it to deserve. On the other, he who is a stranger to the matter may be led by envy to suspect exaggeration if he hears anything above his own nature. For men can endure to hear others praised only so long as they can severally persuade themselves of their own ability to equal the actions recounted. When this point is passed, envy comes in, and with it incredulity. However, since our ancestors have stamped this custom with their approval, it becomes my duty to obey the law and to try to satisfy your several wishes and opinions as best I may. I shall begin with our ancestors. It is both just and proper that they should have the honor of the first mention on an occasion like the present. They dwelt in the country without break in the succession from generation to generation, and handed it down free to the present time by their valor. 
and if our more remote ancestors deserve praise, much more do our own fathers, who added to their inheritance the empire which we now possess, and spared no pains to be able to leave their acquisitions to us of the present generation. Lastly, there are a few parts of our dominions that have not been augmented by those of us here, who are still more or less in the vigor of life, while the mother country has been furnished by us with everything that can enable her to depend on her own resources, whether for war or peace. That part of our history which tells us of the military achievements which gave us our several possessions, or of the ready valor with which either we or our fathers stemmed the tide of Hellenic or foreign aggression, is a theme too familiar to my hearers for me to dilate on, and I shall therefore pass it by. But what was the road by which we reached our position? What the form of government under which our greatness grew? What the national habits out of which it sprang? These are questions which I may try to solve before I proceed to my panegyric upon these men, since I think this to be a subject which on the present occasion a speaker may properly dwell, and to which the whole assemblage, whether citizens or foreigners, may listen with advantage. Our constitution does not copy the laws of neighboring states. We are rather a pattern to others than imitators ourselves. Its administration favors the many instead of the few. This is why it is called a democracy. If we look to the laws, they afford equal justice to all in their private differences. If no social standing, advancement in public life falls to reputation for capacity, class considerations not being allowed to interfere with merit. Nor again does poverty bar the way. If a man is able to serve the state, he is not hindered by the obscurity of his condition. The freedom which we enjoy in our government extends also to our ordinary life. There, far from exercising a jealous surveillance over each other, we do not feel called upon to be angry with our neighbor for doing what he likes, or even to indulge in those injurious looks which cannot fail to be offensive, although they inflict no positive penalty. But all this ease in our private relations does not make us lawless as citizens. Against this fear is our chief safeguard. Teaching us to obey the magistrates and the laws, particularly such as regard the protection of the injured, whether they are actually on the statute book, or belong to that code which, although unwritten, yet cannot be broken without acknowledged disgrace. Further, we provide plenty of means for the mind to refresh itself from business. We celebrate games and sacrifices all the year round, and the elegance of our private establishments forms a daily source of pleasure and helps to banish the spleen while the magnitude of our city draws the produce of the world into our harbor, so that to the Athenian the fruits of other countries are as familiar a luxury as those of his own. If we turn to our military policy, there also we differ from our antagonists. We throw open our city to the world, and never by alien acts exclude foreigners from any opportunity of learning or observing, although the eyes of an enemy may occasionally profit by our liberality. Trusting less in system and policy than to the native spirit of our citizens. While in education, where our rivals from their very cradles by a painful discipline seek after manliness, at Athens we live exactly as we please, and yet are just as ready to encounter every legitimate danger. In proof of this, it must be noticed that the Lacedaemonians do not invade our country alone, but bring with them all their confederates while we Athenians advance unsupported into the territory of a neighbor, and fighting upon a foreign soil, 
usually vanquish with ease men who are defending their homes. Our united force was never yet encountered by any enemy, because we have at once to attend to our, our marine and to dispatch our citizens by land upon a hundred different services, so that wherever they engage with some such fraction of our strength, a success against a detachment is magnified into a victory over the nation, and a defeat into a reverse suffered at the hands of our entire people. And yet with habits not of labor, but of ease, and courage not of art, but of nature, we are still willing to encounter danger. We have the double advantage of escaping the experience of hardships in anticipation, and of facing them in the hour of need, as fearlessly as those who are never free from them. Nor are these the only points in which our city is worthy of admiration. We cultivate refinement without extravagance, and knowledge without effeminacy. Wealth we employ more for use than for show, and place the real disgrace of poverty not in owning to the fact, but in declining the struggle against it. Our public men have, besides politics, their private affairs to attend to, and our ordinary citizens, though occupied with the pursuits of industry, are still fair judges of public matters. For, unlike any other nation, regarding him who takes no part in these duties not as an unambitious, but as useless, we Athenians are able to judge at all events if we cannot originate, and, instead of looking on discussion as a stumbling block in the way of action, we think it an indispensable preliminary to any wise action at all. Again, in our enterprises we present the singular spectacle of daring and deliberation, each carried to its highest point, and both united in the same persons. Although usually decision is the fruit of ignorance, hesitation of reflection, but the palm of courage will surely be adjudged most justly to those who best know the difference between hardship and pleasure, and yet are never tempted to shrink from danger. In generosity we are equally singular, acquiring our friends by conferring, not by receiving, favors. Yet, of course, the doer of the favor is the firmer friend of the two, in order by continued kindness to keep the recipient in his debt, while the debtor feels less keenly from the very consciousness that the return he makes will be a payment, not a free gift. And it is only the Athenians who, fearless of consequences, confer their benefits not from calculations of expediency, but in the confidence of liberality. In short, I say that as a city we are the school of Hellas, while I doubt if the world can produce a man who, where he has only himself to depend upon, is equal to so many emergencies, and graced by so happy a versatility as the Athenian and that this is no mere boast thrown out for the occasion, but plain matter of fact, the power of the state acquired by these habits proves. For Athens alone of her contemporaries is found when tested to be greater than her reputation, and alone gives no occasion to her assailants to blush at the antagonist by whom they have been worsted, or to her subjects to question her title by merit to rule. Rather, the admiration of the present and succeeding ages will be ours since we have not left our power without witness, but have shown it by mighty proofs, and far from needing a homer for our panegyrist, or other of his craft whose verses might charm for the moment, only for the impression which they gave to melt at the touch of fact, we have forced every sea and land to be the highway of our daring, and everywhere, whether for evil or for good, have left imperishable monuments behind us. Such is the Athens for which these men, in the assertion of their resolve not to lose her, nobly fought and died, and well may every one of their survivors be ready to suffer in her cause. 
Indeed, if I have dwelt at some length upon the character of our country, it has been to show that our stake in the struggle is not the same as theirs who have no such blessings to lose, and also that the panegyric of the men over whom I, whom I am now speaking might be by definite proofs established. That panegyric is now in a great measure complete, for the Athens that I have celebrated is only what the heroism of these and their like have made her, men whose fame, unlike that of most Hellenes, will be found to be only commensurate with their deserts. And if a test of worth be wanted, it is to be found in their closing scene, and this not only in cases in which it set the final seal upon their merit, but also in those which it gave the first intimation of their having any. For there is justice in the claim that steadfastness in his country's battles should be as a cloak to cover a man's other imperfections. Since the good action has blotted out the bad, and his merit as a citizen more than outweighed his demerits as an individual. But none of these allowed either wealth, with its prospect of future employment, to unnerve his spirit, or poverty, with its hope of a day of freedom and riches, to tempt him to shrink from danger. No. Holding that vengeance upon their enemies was more to be desired than any personal blessings, and reckoning this to be the most glorious of hazards, they joyfully determined to accept the risk, to make sure of their vengeance, and to let their wishes wait. And while committing to hope the uncertainty of final success, in the business before them they thought fit to act boldly and trust in themselves. Thus, choosing to die resisting rather than live submitting, they fled only from dishonor, but met danger face to face, and after one brief moment, while at the summit of their fortune, escaped, not from their fear, but from their glory. So died these men, as became Athenians. You, their survivors, must determine to have as unfaltering a resolution in the field, though you may pray that it may have a happier issue, and not contented with ideas derived only from words of the advantages which are bound up with the defense of your country though these would furnish a valuable text to a speaker even before an audience so alive to them as the present, you must yourselves realize the power of Athens, and feed your eyes upon her from day to day, till the love of her fills your hearts. And then, when all her greatness shall break upon you, you must reflect that it was by courage, sense of duty, and a keen feeling of honor in action that men were enabled to win all this and that no personal failure in an enterprise could make them consent to deprive their country of their valor. But they laid it at her feet as the most glorious contribution that they could offer. For this offering their lives made in common by them all, they each of them individually received that renown which never grows old, and for a sepulchre not so much that in that in which their bones have been deposited, but that noblest of shrines wherein their glory is laid up to be eternally remembered upon every occasion on which deed or story shall call for its commemoration. For heroes have the whole earth for their tomb, and in lands far from their own, where the column with its epitaph declares it, there is enshrined in every breast a record unwritten, with no tablet to preserve it, except that of the heart. These take as your model, and, judging happiness to be the fruit of, of freedom, and freedom of valor, of valor, never decline the dangers of war, for it is not the miserable that would most justly be unsparing of their lives. These have nothing to hope for. It is rather they to whom contributed life, continued life may bring reverses as yet unknown, and to whom a fall, if it came, would be most tremendous in its consequences. And surely, to a man of spirit, the degradation of cowardice must be immeasurably more grievous than the unfelt death which strikes him in the midst of his strength and patriotism. 
Comfort, therefore, not condolence, is what I have to offer to the parents of the dead who may be here. Numberless are the chances to which, as they know, the life of a man is subject. But fortunate indeed are they who draw for their lot a death so glorious as that which has caused your mourning, and to whom life has been so exactly measured as to terminate in the happiness in which it has been passed. Still I know that this is a hard saying, especially when those are in, are in question of whom you will constantly be reminded, by seeing in the homes of others blessings of which once you also boasted. For grief is felt not so much for the want of what we have never known, as for the loss of that to which we have been long accustomed. Yet you, who are still of an age to beget children, must bear up in the hope of having others in their stead. Not only will they help you to forget those whom you have lost, but will be to the state at once a reinforcement and a security. For never can a fair or just policy be expected of the citizen who does not, like his fellows, bring to the decision the interests and apprehensions of a father. While those of you who have pressed your prime must congratulate yourselves with the thought that the best part of your life was fortunate, and that the brief span that remains will be cheered by the fame of the departed. For it is only the love of honor that never grows old, and honor it is, not gain, as some would have it, that rejoices the heart of age and helplessness. Turning to the sons or brothers of the dead, I see an arduous struggle before you. When a man is gone, all are wont to praise him, and should your merit be ever so transcendent, you will still find it difficult not merely to overtake, but even to approach their renown. The living have envy to contend with, while those who are no longer in our path are honored with a good will into which rivalry does not enter. On the other hand, if I must say anything on the subject of female excellence to those of you who will now be in widowhood, it will be all comprised in this brief exhortation. Great will be your glory in not falling short of your natural character, and greatest will be hers who is least talked of among the men, whether for good or for bad. My task now is finished. I have performed it to the best of my ability, and in word at least the requirements of the law are now satisfied. If deeds be in question, those who are here interred have received part of their honors already, and for the rest, their children will be brought up till manhood at the public expense. The state thus offers a valuable prize, as the garland of victory in this race of valor, for the reward both of those who have fallen and their survivors. And where the rewards for merit are greatest, there are found the best citizens. And now that you have brought to a close your lamentations for your relatives, you may depart. This is the end of chapter 6.